Hey, true crime fanatics, I'm Jake Barton, creator of the history storytelling podcast called Historium, and you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Blueberry offers the best media hosting, accurate listening stats, and their all-new PowerPress Deluxe sites, a no-setup WordPress website for your podcast, and it comes with all of the necessary links to share your show with the world built right in. Head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up for media hosting, a PowerPress Deluxe site, get that podcast that you've been dreaming about started, and get your first month for free. That's right, I said free. That's www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream. And now, on to the show. Warning, this episode contains details of violence against a young child, including abduction and sexual assault, and may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. What are some things that frustrate you when it comes to a true crime investigation? Last time we talked, we discussed Juan Catalan being wrongly accused of a crime he did not commit. I cringe when I watch some police interrogation videos especially when you already know the police have got it all wrong. I was frustrated a lot with the story two weeks ago. Actually, I had started off thinking it would be one of those feel-good endings, but it was really far from that for me. I mean, I'm glad Juan isn't on death row or anything, but I'm still shook up about the police interrogation, the trickery, the lies, and the consequences of those lies. All I can say is, I hope that police everywhere look at that case and take away some lessons. I get frustrated with wrongful convictions. So frustrated, in fact, I hardly listen to podcasts or shows or episodes that feature a wrongfully convicted individual or group of individuals. It bothers me to no end to hear a story about anyone who sat in jail for way too many years for a crime they did not commit. I have yet to tell a story that involves someone who's been wrongfully convicted. However, I am entertaining a couple of stories to tell in the near future. One who has had his murder conviction tossed out, and one who is currently sitting on death row, who I mostly think is responsible for the crime, but I'm not 100% convinced he actually had the opportunity to do it. I get frustrated when a defendant goes on trial for a crime and the whole world is certain that he or she is absolutely guilty of that crime with which they are accused, yet somehow pretty much the only 12 people on the planet that have reasonable doubt just happen to get picked for that jury and they find the defendant not guilty. I have come to appreciate and understand the justice system for what it is and this is how it works. But when someone is acquitted in a case that seems like a surefire conviction, like O.J. Simpson or Casey Anthony or even George Zimmerman or Robert Blake, I remember being stunned at all of those verdicts. And then, knowing that there's likely never going to be justice for any of those victims, unless you're O.J. and you're not going to rest until you find the true killer, am I right? Right. Right. Both him and Robert Blake, I'm sure. 
Another thing that really bugs me is when police mishandle a case or they make a big, huge mistake that destroys evidence or compromises the case as a whole. Again, I think of OJ and all of the mishandling of the evidence and then the Mark Furman debacle to boot. Or how about the murder of Sherry Rasmussen? That's a story we've heard on several podcasts by now. Case File, Court Junkie, Moms and Murder, oh, and Sex, Love and Murder. These are at least four shows that I can think of off the top of my head that covered her murder. That took the LAPD 23 years to solve because the initial investigators wrote her murder off as a robbery gone bad, despite the fact that everyone was trying to tell them that Sherry was having problems with a disgruntled ex-girlfriend of her husband's who also happened to be an LAPD officer too named Stephanie Lazarus. Investigators wouldn't even entertain the idea that Sherry's killing was anything more than their robbery theory until 23 years later when DNA evidence proved them all wrong. I would have to say that the one thing that stands out to me most as most frustrating are missed opportunities. You ever watch an episode of some show on investigation discovery or something and you see cases where so many chances to change the trajectory of a case were missed for one reason or another? The first thing that popped into my mind was the kidnapping of Denise Amber Lee in Florida. Do you guys remember that story? On January 17, 2008, Denise was abducted from her home and driven down busy streets through residential neighborhoods in broad daylight, all the while screaming for help. And it all played out in a series of calls from concerned citizens that lit up the 911 call centers, including a call from the victim herself as her abductor was driving her around. In all, there were a total of five 911 calls related to Denise's kidnapping that were placed by five different people between 3.29 p.m. and 6.30 p.m. on the afternoon of her abduction. Four of those calls were routed to operators in Sarasota County, Florida, and the fourth call out of the five was routed to neighboring Charlotte County, Florida, and that call was purportedly mishandled by 911 operators. The second call in the series was placed by Denise herself from her abductor's own cell phone. People could see her in the car. They were giving 911 a real-time play-by-play as the man who took her was making his way to wherever he was intent on going. He ended up killing Denise. Despite all those 911 calls that got lost, mixed up, confused, and ultimately everyone dropped the ball. If you have a chance to re-watch that episode, I'm pretty sure it was Dateline entitled The Detective's Daughter. But yeah, her dad was a part of that very department that failed to save her life. Those missed opportunities to stop that man. Another case that kind of gets to me too, when so many things are missed, the Anthony Soul case out of Cleveland, Ohio. This was a case that put the entire criminal justice system in Ohio and its handling of rape cases under intense scrutiny. Soul was convicted in 2011 of killing 11 women and leaving their bodies in his house decomposing. But 
It was a case where the Cleveland Police Department missed several opportunities to apprehend the serial killer. About a year before he was caught, a woman reported to the police that he had tried to rape her. Her claims were dismissed by the Cleveland Police Department, as well as the county prosecutor, as they said she was not a credible person, despite the fact that Sol was a convicted sex offender. This was followed up by another rape reported against Sol, and it took more than a month for Cleveland police to begin investigating this report. And it was ultimately this that led police to visit his home, which led to the revelation of the magnitude of his crimes. In the months following the discovery of what was going on at Sol's residence, very crucial mistakes that were made came to light, which indicated that it wasn't only the Cleveland Police Department that could have caught this killer sooner. Huge mistakes that allowed this man to slip through the cracks much longer than he should have. In April of 2009, a woman accepted a ride from a man named Tony. After she got into the car, he punched her in the face and was taken to a home that matched the description of Soul's house, according to police reports. Reports also stated that this Tony person put her in a chokehold and dragged her to the third floor of his home, where she later described it as smelling stagnant, like rotten garbage or mold. Turns out, the smell was from dead bodies. She was raped four times and given an unknown drug during the night and passed out. When she awoke, she smashed a picture frame over the man's head and escaped the home, but as she ran from his home, she lost track of what street she was on. She was able to call a friend who took her to the hospital and a rape kit was administered. A patrol officer wrote up the report and attempted to locate the assailant's home, but was unable to. The police officer placed the DNA evidence obtained from the rape test kit into a bin, but according to the department, the patrol officer failed to tell the sex crime detectives about the evidence. So, this rape kit sat unopened for two years, and the case grew cold. It wasn't until after Sol was arrested that the victim contacted the Cleveland Police Department and retold her story. It was then that the rape kit evidence was located and tested. It was a DNA match to Sol. At the time, the Cleveland Police Department didn't have a computerized system to track forensic evidence. But even if they had submitted the DNA evidence in a timely manner, it wouldn't have led to a match to Seoul anyway. And this would have been because of another crucial mistake by another law enforcement agency. When Seoul was in prison in 1997, serving a 15-year sentence for rape, his DNA was taken as a part of the state's CODIS program but for some reason it was never entered into the system. And according to the Attorney General, they have no idea what happened to it. Of course, as a result of the Soul case, there's been a massive overhaul across all law enforcement agencies in Ohio when it comes to processing evidence and sexual assault investigation policies. I don't know how many victims may have been saved if Anthony Soul would have been stopped sooner. I kind of don't want to know. One of the biggest cases full of missed opportunities in recent times that I can think of that happened right here in California 
is the story of J.C. Degard. On June 10, 1991, J.C. was 11 years old when she was abducted while she was walking from home to her bus stop by convicted sex offender Philip Garrido. She remained missing until 2009 when he had paid a visit to the University of California, Berkeley that August with two young girls. His odd behavior stood out to the events director who took his name, passed it along to campus police. Upon running a background check, it was discovered that he indeed was a registered sex offender and his parole officer was contacted and that's when JC was discovered after 18 long years along with two children she bore, fathered by Garrido. Her story revealed the failures of three different governmental entities over a period of more than two decades who were supposed to have been supervising Garrido. The United States Parole Commission, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, and the Contra Costa Sheriff's Department. All of them missed opportunities to prevent Garrido's crimes including first and foremost, the Parole Commission, releasing Garrido from prison on January 20th, 1988, after he kidnapped Katie Calloway Hall in 1977. He received a 20-year federal prison sentence, but was released after only 10 years. Had he not been paroled, none of us would come to know who J.C. Lee Degard ever was. Next, Garrido's parole was terminated early by the Parole Commission on March 9, 1999, basing its decision on his quote-unquote clean record. A parole agent even wrote Garrido a letter thanking him for his cooperation during his time on parole. By this time, he had been holding J.C. captive for almost eight years, unbeknownst to his parole officers, apparently. The California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, or CDCR, then took over Garrido's supervision in 1999 after he was let off parole. According to the California Inspector General's report, CDCR officers paid 60 home visits to Garrido between June of 1999 and August of 2009. Yet during those visits, Parole officers failed to notice or detect J.C. and her daughters living on Garrido's property, despite some obvious evidence, including reports that parole agents had even in fact seen and spoken to J.C. at some point during those 10 years, but failed to take any action. Also, on June 17, 2008, a parole officer saw a 12-year-old girl on Garrido's property, who was later determined to be one of the daughters he fathered with J.C. on at least one visit to this home, but again failed to follow up or take action. At the time, Garrido said the girl was his brother's daughter, according to the inspector's report. Garrido's brother doesn't have a daughter, and if that parole agent had just taken the simple step of contacting the brother, he would have quickly determined that Garrido was lying and could have been investigated further. The CDCR further failed by inadequately classifying Garrido as a violent sexual predator, thus failing to supervise him accordingly. The CDCR also failed to visit Garrido in a timely manner, 
having supposed to have begun visits in 1999, but did not pay him a visit until 2000. The CDCR also failed to obtain key information from federal parole authorities regarding Garrido's background. They also failed to talk to neighbors or to local public safety agencies about Garrido and his day-to-day activities. The CDCR missed opportunities and important clues like the visible utility wires that were running from his house toward the hidden compound in his backyard where he had been keeping J.C. prisoner. They also failed to act on information that Garrido had violated the terms of his parole. And lastly, the Contra Costa Sheriff's Office actually had the opportunity to stop Garrido in November of 2006 after it responded to a 911 call claiming that there were children living on Garrido's property. A sheriff's deputy visited the home after the call, met with Garrido on his front lawn, came to the determination somehow that there was no threat, and left. JC would go on to be awarded $20 million in compensation for all of these missed opportunities. Missed opportunities that I can't figure out if they're more heartbreaking or infuriating. Missed opportunities that should not even be a thing, but they were, and I'm pretty sure they will continue to be. But today, I'm going to tell you a story, a tragic and upsetting story that continues to resonate with not only the small California community where all of this took place, but with everyone who ever heard this story. Even today, almost a quarter century after the fact, we still haven't forgotten the story of a little girl taken away from her own home. In today's episode of California Dreaming, the tale of Polly Class. Polly Hannah Class was born January 3rd, 1981 in Fairfax, California to Mark and Eve Class. Her parents divorced when Polly was two and a half years old, but by all accounts, The divorce was amicable, and Polly's parents were able to remain friends. While her mom gained full custody, Mark faithfully visited Polly on a regular basis as the two successfully co-parented the child they had together. Polly and her mom did move around a lot while she was growing up, which contributed to Polly having been described as a shy child that sometimes struggled with developing friendships in school. Her mom eventually remarried a gentleman by the name of Alan Nichol. He had three children of his own from a previous marriage. He and Polly's mom had a child together in 1987, a daughter named Annie. Polly got along well with her step-siblings and her new little sister, but there had been some strain and some levels of conflict with her stepfather. But that doesn't really strike me as that unusual. Despite being shy and sometimes withdrawn, she did have a dramatic, more theatrical side to herself. She enjoyed participating in school productions and plays. She dreamed of someday becoming an actress. She also enjoyed music and was an active member of her school's band. She liked actor Mel Gibson 
and 49ers quarterback Joe Montana. She loved comic books and Judy Bloom books. Her favorite foods were popcorn and hot fudge sundaes. She was an animal lover and had two cats, Spooky and Milo. Polly was described as having a wonderful sense of humor and loved playing practical jokes and enjoyed being able to make people laugh with her silliness, antics, and sarcasm. Polly was very close with her father's parents, Joe and BJ Class. They would take her on vacation with them, including trips to Mexico and Yellowstone Park. But Polly was exceptionally close to her dad, Mark, a manager at Hertz Rent-A-Car office in San Francisco, with whom she spent most of her weekends and holidays. But no matter where Polly and her mom moved, Mark was always a presence in her life. He often volunteered in her class as he played a very, very active role. They had an incredible relationship. By the time Polly was reaching her teen years, she was blossoming into quite a darling young woman with unforgettable dimples every time she smiled. Polly did have a lifelong fear of the dark, and she always had to sleep with the nightlight on. She was afraid of the boogeyman, and she repeatedly talked about her fears with her parents. Knowing what we know about Polly's fate, I'm certain we find this to be bitterly ironic. By the time Polly was 12, she was living with her mom and her younger sister Annie in the town of Petaluma, California, an affluent suburb located about 40 miles south of San Francisco. Polly's mom had been separated from her second husband and was residing in a modest home with her two girls close to downtown Petaluma. It was here on October 1st, 1993, that Polly had her two best friends, Kate and Jillian, over for a slumber party. The girls attended Petaluma Junior High School together. They became fast friends as members of the school band who all happened to coincidentally play the same instrument, the clarinet. The girls were doing whatever 12-year-old girls do at slumber parties, goofing around, playing with makeup, Unaware that there was a heavy-set man with a bushy gray beard loitering around the front area outside of Polly's house. Several people noticed him. Several neighbors saw him. But to them, he didn't appear to be doing anything threatening. They figured he might have been a vagrant or he was just out on a walk. But he was not. Polly and her friends had been playing a board game when they decided it was time to get their sleeping bags set up. They went to Polly's bedroom to get their stuff, and when they opened the door, they encountered a man standing in her room. This heavy-set, bearded man. A man none of them knew who he was. He was holding a knife, and... He demanded that the girls not scream or he'd cut their throats. The girls stayed quiet. He asked them who lived at the house. Polly answered him that she did. At first, 
Kate and Jillian thought that this might be one of Polly's practical jokes. But it quickly became apparent that Polly was not in on this. The man told them that he was doing this for the money. Polly, such a sweet girl, in an attempt to save herself and her friends, offered him a box that she had that had about $50 in it. He refused the box and he told the three scared girls to lie down on the floor. He bound their hands behind their backs and placed pillowcases over their heads. He kept telling them that he wasn't going to hurt them, that he was doing this for the money. Polly asked the man. She begged him to please not hurt her mom or her sister. Polly's friends, understanding and feeling the terror in Polly's voice, could see as soon as she pleaded for the lives of her mom and her sister that this was no joke. This intruder picked Polly up and told her friends to count to a thousand before moving or calling anyone. Then he took Polly out of her home and took her away from her family and disappeared into the night. Jillian and Kate did not follow the instructions of this man. They did not count to a thousand they immediately began to struggle to free their hands. At approximately 10.45 p.m. that night, Polly's friends frantically woke up her mom and told her what had happened. Polly's mom contacted 911, setting in motion a massive manhunt for this predator who took Polly from her own bedroom. The Petaluma police were soon scouring the area searching for Polly and this man who took her. They broadcasted a description of the stranger that Polly's friends were able to provide for police, a tall white man with a grayish beard wearing dark clothing. This information was broadcasted throughout Sonoma County, but unfortunately, not to every station. This would be the first crucial missed opportunity this failure to communicate the description of Polly's abductor throughout the entire area that perhaps caused delays in Polly's case. I have this feeling we're going to be telling ourselves several times over the course of the story. Only if. Only if the broadcast had been heard by every single law enforcement agency in the area. Only if. So around midnight, the same evening of Polly's abduction, a 911 call was placed about 25 miles away from Polly's home. It was a complaint about a trespasser on a person's property. The person who wasn't home at the time, but was alerted by another person who was babysitting for her child. When the homeowner got back, the babysitter left. She headed down the hill in her own car and happened to spot the stranger wearing dark clothing looking at a Ford Pinto that seemed to be stuck in a ditch on the side of the road. She pulled over to talk to the man and cracked her window open slightly. He shoved his fingers through the window, attempting to reach inside, and started yelling that he was stuck and needed some rope. The babysitter found the man to be incredibly frightening, so she gestured to him, waved him off, and quickly sped away. 
She made her way to a payphone and called the woman she had just been babysitting for to report to her about the strange man on her property. When the homeowner hung up, she decided that she did not feel safe contacting police from her own house. Where she lived was very isolated, and it made her feel unsafe and vulnerable to be there waiting around for police. She decided to put some distance between herself and this trespasser, so she got her daughter a baseball bat, and a can of mace. They got into her car to go someplace where she felt safe calling the police. On her way down the hill from her home, she too drove past that stranded Pinto. She found a payphone at a gas station and called police. Two deputies were dispatched to investigate this trespassing call. When they arrived, they encountered a man by the name of Richard Allen Davis. It was his pinto that was stuck in this ditch leading up to that home. He was a relatively large man, and he was filthy. He had twigs stuck in his hair, and he appeared to be sweating profusely, despite the night being rather cool. He repeatedly wiped sweat off of his forehead with his shirt, but to the deputies, he did not appear to be nervous or otherwise agitated. The officers questioned him about what he was doing out there, and he calmly stated that he was sightseeing. The cops grew somewhat skeptical. It was really late, and it was dark, and the area was desolate. Sightseeing made no sense to the officers. Davis, seemingly without a care about the fact that he was being questioned by these two officers, nonchalantly retrieved a beer out of his car, cracked it open, and began having a drink. The officers told him that he could not do that, so he proceeded to throw the can into some bushes. He was ordered to pick it up, which he did. This guy has all kinds of nerve testing these officers like this, didn't he? Anyway, the officers ran a check to see if this man had any outstanding warrants, but there weren't any. Davis was clear. Here comes the next missed opportunity. What the officers failed to do was run a quick background check on this man to see who they were talking to. If they had, they would have discovered that the person before them has a long history of convictions, including robbery, burglary, assault, kidnapping, as well as a lengthy history of violence against women. They would have also realized that he was on parole and he was in the process of violating the terms of this parole. Police would later defend the actions of these two deputies, stating that it's not routine procedure to run a background check on suspected trespassers. Okay, whatever. So this might actually be a good time to go over the lengthy criminal history of one Richard Allen Davis. His first contact with law enforcement was March 6, 1967, when Davis was 12 years old. He was arrested for burglary in Chowchilla, California, where he was living at the time with his grandmother. Two and a half months later, on May 24, 1967, Davis was arrested for forging a $10 money order. He briefly spent time in juvenile hall, 
After that, his father moved him and his siblings to La Honda, California. On November 15, 1969, at the age of 15, Davis was arrested for the burglary of a La Honda home. The next day, for the first of several occasions, Davis's father turned him and his older brother in to the juvenile authorities for incorrigibility, or otherwise being unable to be corrected or reformed. On September 15, 1970, at the age of 16, Davis was arrested for motorcycle theft. At the suggestion of his father, a probation officer, and a judge agreed to have Davis enlist in the Army in order to avoid being sent to the California Youth Authority. So, in July of 1971, just after his 17th birthday, Davis enlisted in the Army. His military records indicate numerous infractions, including being AWOL, fighting, failure to report, and morphine use. In August of 1972, when Davis was 18, he received a general discharge from the military. Still 18 years old, on February 12, 1973, Davis was arrested in Redwood City, California for public drunkenness and resisting arrest. He was placed on one-year summary probation. A little more than two months after that, on April 21, 1973, Davis was arrested in Redwood City again for being underaged and in possession of liquor, burglary, and contributing to the delinquents of a minor. He had also been charged with trespassing, but that was later dismissed. Almost four months later, on August 12, 1973, at the age of 19 now, Davis was arrested again in Redwood City for being extremely intoxicated in public. He sobered up in a holding cell and was released. Three months later, on October 24, 1973, Davis was arrested again in Redwood City. I'm beginning to feel like a broken record here. This time for traffic warrants. But when he was arrested on this occasion, he was implicated in more than 20 La Honda burglaries. His neighbors and residents were so angry with Davis that his probation officer felt he might be in danger if he was returned to the La Honda area. So Davis pleaded guilty to burglary and was sentenced to six months in county jail and placed on three years probation. How ironic that there was a time when someone was concerned for his safety. Ugh, whatever. Okay, so the following year, about seven months later, on May 13, 1974, still 19 years old, Davis was arrested for burglarizing a South San Francisco high school. He was then sent to the California Medical Facility in Vacaville for a 90-day diagnostic study. A county probation officer recommended that he be sent to prison, but those proceedings were suspended when Davis enrolled in a Veterans Administration alcohol treatment program. He quit two days into the program. Four months later, on September 16, 1974, at the age of 20, Davis was sentenced to one year in county jail for the high school burglary. 
He was then allowed to leave the jail to attend a Native American drug and alcohol treatment program. He failed to return to jail after the treatment program, and in the process, left two fellow inmates high and dry when they had given him money to buy drugs and bring the stuff back to the jail. Almost six months later, on March 2, 1975, those inmates he ripped off had been released. So, they tracked Davis down and shot him in the back. He was then rearrested on a probation violation for failing to return to the jail. He would later testify against the two men who had shot him, but this only earned him the reputation for being a snitch. Therefore, he needed to be kept in protective custody. Apparently, at some point, Davis was released into society again because a little more than a month later, on April 11, 1975, he was arrested yet again for another probation violation. And then he was out again, as exactly three months later, on July 11, 1975, now at the age of 21, he was arrested for auto theft and possession of marijuana. He received a 10-day jail sentence. A month and three days later, on August 14, 1975, Davis was arrested yet again for burglary and grand theft. This arrest caused his probation to be revoked, and he was sentenced to six months to 15 years in prison. Less than a year later, and now at the age of 22, Davis was paroled on August 2, 1976. One month and 22 days after being paroled on September 24, 1976, Davis abducted Francis Mays, a 26-year-old legal administrative assistant from the South Haywood BART, or Bay Area Rapid Transit Station. He attempted to sexually assault her, but she escaped and managed to hail a passing car, which luckily had a California Highway Patrol officer in it. That officer arrested Davis. Two and a half months later, on December 8, 1976, Davis was transferred to the Napa State Hospital for psychiatric evaluation after he had attempted to hang himself in an Alameda County jail cell. He later admitted that he faked the suicide in order to be sent to a state hospital where an escape would have been easier. For some reason, when Davis went through the admissions process at the state hospital, he was listed as a voluntary patient, not as a prisoner. Eight days later, on December 16, 1976, Davis did indeed successfully escape from the Napa State Hospital and embarked upon a four-day-long crime spree. He broke into the home of a nurse at the state hospital named Marjorie Mitchell. He attacked her and beat her about the head with a fire poker while she slept. Davis next broke into a Napa County animal shelter and stole a shotgun. He then used that shotgun to attempt to kidnap a bartender named Hazel Frost as she was getting into her car outside of her place of work. When she saw that he had the implements to use in order to bind her, she quickly scrambled to get out of the car and at the same time reached for a loaded gun she had kept beneath the seat and fired six shots at Davis as he ran away. On December 21, 1976, Davis broke into the home of Josephine Krieger in the town of La Honda. Fortunately, he was arrested by a San Mateo County Sheriff's deputy as he was attempting to hide behind some shrubs 
in the backyard of the home with that stolen shotgun in hand. Six months later, and one day before Davis was to turn 23 years old, on June 1st, 1977, he was sentenced to a term of 1 to 25 years in prison for the kidnapping of Francis Mays. The sexual assault charges, unfortunately, were dropped as a part of the plea bargain. Later, he was sentenced for the Napa crime spree and the La Honda break-in, but those terms were to be served concurrently with the kidnapping sentence. Not even having served five years, Davis was paroled on March 4, 1982. He was then 27 years old. It wouldn't be until more than two and a half years later that he would begin racking up more criminal charges. On November 30, 1984, at the age of 30, and along with his new girlfriend slash partner in crime, Sue Edwards, Davis pistol-whipped a friend of Edwards' sister named Selena Varich in her Redwood City apartment. They forced her to withdraw $6,000 from her bank account, and Davis and Edwards were able to successfully make a getaway with all that money. About four months later, on March 22, 1985, Davis was arrested in Modesto, California, when he was pulled over for a broken taillight. He and his girlfriend were charged with robbing a frozen yogurt shop, as well as the Delta National Bank in Modesto. While in custody, he confessed to a couple of other robberies in Kennewick, Washington, in an effort to implicate his girlfriend, who he wanted to throw under the bus in order to save himself and to get back at her for turning her back on him while he remained in prison. He ended up being sentenced to 16 years for the kidnapping of Selena Varick. On June 27, 1993, at the age of 39, Davis was paroled after serving only eight years of those 16 years for good behavior. It would be only 95 days later that Richard Allen Davis would sneak into Polly's bedroom during that slumber party and take her away forever. That night that Davis was questioned by those deputies on that private property, that same night Polly had been abducted from her bedroom, those deputies, sadly, had no idea they were talking to the man who had taken her. They would have had no idea by the time that they had found him on the side of the road with his car stuck that Polly was most likely already no longer alive. Even if they hadn't missed that opportunity to take this man into custody, even if they had figured out exactly who it was they were talking to, it was most likely too late to have saved her life. But still, it runs chills down my spine that he was right there. Polly was still someplace close by. He says that she was still alive, but who knows if you can believe that guy. She might have been. She could have been clinging to life. I don't know. But those deputies had no idea. I guess they couldn't have known what kind of monster was standing there before them. The kidnapping of Polly Class shook the quiet town of Petaluma to its core. 
when the stranger snuck into her home as her mother slept across the hall, tied up and gagged those three girls at knife point and took Polly away. The brazenness, the audacity of this was completely shocking to the community, and its citizens were thrust into an extraordinary effort to find Polly. Local print shops produced more than one million flyers with Polly's picture, along with the composite sketch of the abductor based on the description Polly's friends were able to provide. I'm going to get into more details of the investigation a little bit later, after I talk about the search efforts. Those in charge of the volunteer search effort were determined to make sure Polly's picture, along with the picture of her abductor, were spread so quickly and so widespread that there would not be one single person who did not know who and what to look for. They wanted to ensure that the abductor would have no place to hide, that everybody knew what this guy looked like. Hundreds and hundreds of volunteers turned out to pass up flyers, search the town for any sign of Polly, and to staff a hotline 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to ensure that no stone was left unturned, no collar tip would slip through the cracks. And I don't know how many of you remember back to 1993, but the internet was in its infancy. But it did prove useful as a tool in spreading the word about Polly's kidnapping. Her missing flyer had the ability to be downloaded to millions and millions of users in a way that was unprecedented when it came to the internet. The sentiment was felt by everyone Polly must be found, that this man broke into the safety of Polly's home, where families and children are supposed to feel safe. And the fact that someone would come into a home and steal a child made everyone feel uneasy. And the feelings resonated across the entire community, and everybody needed to see this man captured and brought to justice. The FBI were called in to assist in the case and I will also go into the various aspects of the investigative expertise that is often beyond the capabilities of small local law enforcement agencies, even for the time, 25 years ago. The FBI had equipment and techniques that only they had access to. And one of the biggest reasons that the FBI got involved in this case, these types of cases are the most difficult to investigate. And I'm sure you've heard this before, the stranger abduction. With no known motive, no demands coming in, no ransom, no suspects, police and FBI have virtually nothing to go on. Polly's neighborhood was systematically searched inch by inch in hopes of finding the suspect. By dawn, over 100 agents and officers were looking for the 12-year-old. Helicopters searched from the skies, bloodhounds search for any hint of her scent. And an all-points bulletin was sent out to everyone. Every house in the neighborhood was searched. And agents even paid a visit to Polly's school and talked to teachers and students to see if anyone had any kind of information that could have been useful in finding her abductor. 
They asked everyone they could find if there had been anything or anyone suspicious that night. Several people did recall seeing that stranger around the neighborhood that did match the description given by Polly's friends. Some boys walking to a local video store saw a man hiding outside around Polly's house. They pretty much knew everyone in the neighborhood, but they did not know who this man was. When they passed by again on their way home from the video store, they saw him again, still standing outside of Polly's house. Their description of the man matched the suspect they were looking for, but unfortunately, it was another missed opportunity, as it didn't occur to the boys to possibly let someone know about the stranger or to contact police about it. Of course, they couldn't have known, but still, if only, right? Another neighbor who lived in a small rental house located directly behind Polly's was playing video games with a friend when he happened to glance out his window at about 10.30 that night. He saw a strange man standing by the back porch of Polly's house. To the neighbor, it looked like he was trying to go in the back door, and his description also fit the description of the suspect. Sadly, for whatever reason, he didn't think enough of the stranger loitering around Polly's back door to make a phone call or to call 911 about it. Again, he couldn't have known. And again, only if. There were, unfortunately, several other neighbors who saw this man lingering around Polly's house. But nobody called. Nobody. After eliminating family and friends as suspects in Polly's disappearance, law enforcement began to take a look at sexual offenders who were registered throughout the county, and they gradually worked their way to the surrounding counties. They carefully investigated and interviewed each registered sex offender, but none of them could be linked to Polly's abduction. Within 24 hours, the search for Polly and her abductor had turned into the largest manhunt in the United States. As I had said, volunteers came in droves in order to cover the entire community and the surrounding areas with flyers. Yet somehow, the information hadn't made its way to those deputies who had talked to Richard Allen Davis that same night. The guy who had his car stuck in that ditch the guy who looked weird with all the dirt and twigs in his hair, the guy who said he was sightseeing, that guy who cracked a beer open and then littered it in front of their faces, the guy who they found with no warrants out, apparently, and the same guy who they helped get his car out of that ditch. These two deputies didn't get the memo that there was a kidnapper who made away with Polly only 25 miles away from where they were standing. They didn't know. And that All Points Bulletin somehow missed them. I want to pause the story here and talk a little bit about abductions for a moment. I think it's important to remember that stories like Polly's are indeed statistically rare. The stranger abduction of a little girl from her middle-class neighborhood in the middle of the night. These kind of stories make it into the media, 
and it often sends communities into a panic like it did because stories like Polly's are often disproportionately reported in the media as they dominate national headlines. And sometimes myths about kidnappings are sometimes perpetrated. The types of kidnappings that get the most media attention are not the most common types of kidnappings that occur. The scary stranger lurking in the dark might not be what we should be most leery about. According to the FBI statistics, kidnappings by strangers is rare, and it's actually been declining for years. They constitute less than 100 cases a year. And most of you out there listening who are true crime fans know that familial abductions are far more common, with more than 350,000 children being kidnapped by a parent each year in the United States. Now, I by no means mean to downplay any case of child abduction, but I do understand the panic that goes along with an abduction such as Polly's. These are indeed very scary to hear about. For me, scarier than maybe a non-custodial parent who's decided to circumvent the court system and take their child for themselves. It's not right, but it's not fear-inducing, you know? I can appreciate the media attention on certain cases. We can't control what the media decides to cover or not cover. But in the end, it often brings about changes because law enforcement are held accountable for what they do or don't do. Some cases are systematically swept under the rug to cover up mistakes and missteps. But when the media focuses in on an investigation, we do get to see and learn from all of those mistakes, those missed opportunities I keep talking about. Disproportionate media coverage, yes. But at the very least, we can take away lessons learned and maybe some changes in policies. And in the wake of Polly's case, there were indeed changes made in California. And I might have the time to discuss some of those changes a little bit later. I'm not sure because this episode is starting to get kind of long. I might make it an extra bonus episode following this one. Anyway, back to the actual law enforcement investigation. The FBI was contacted right away. The Bureau does investigate kidnappings, and they do have extensive experience and expertise to provide, especially for small towns that might not have a police force with very much experience in these types of cases. The FBI arrived at Polly's home shortly after midnight, the night of the abduction, and a lead investigator was immediately assigned to Polly's case one who was familiar with the area and experienced in investigating kidnappings. Right away, it was determined that this was a stranger abduction, and it immediately concerned investigators because these are inherently difficult to solve. There is no connection between the perpetrator and the victim or the victim's family or even anyone associated with the family. In other words, it could literally be anyone. The randomness makes it so difficult. Luckily, there were witnesses, Polly's two friends. 
they got a real good look at this guy. So a composite sketch artist was called in, and for two hours, Polly's friends tried the best they could to recall the man who took Polly. The girls were still, understandably, terribly distraught, but they managed to help put together the composite of what the man looked like. Sometime after four in the morning, the girls were taken to the police station for more questioning. I feel so bad for what these girls had to go through that night. I know that information needed to be had as quickly as possible, but I can't help but wonder if they were getting out of exhausted and emotionally traumatized 12 years old would have been as helpful if they could have just waited a little bit to get better, more accurate details. It's a tough call, you know. Time is of the essence. Children abducted by strangers are very likely to be harmed or killed within the first few hours of having been taken. The evidence response team was immediately dispatched to Polly's house as well. It seems that this time in 1993, they called it the evidence response team, but today, I guess it would be the forensic investigators or the CSI team. The FBI had some of the most sophisticated equipment at the time to collect forensic evidence at the crime scenes, such as fibers, biological evidence, and fingerprints. They had also collected the bindings the girls were tied up with and the rug in Polly's room. Despite the fact that the police department had dusted Polly's room for prints, the FBI came through right behind them with equipment the police did not have access to in looking for prints. Brand new technology at the time utilized an alternate light source that worked in tandem with a unique kind of fluorescent powder that when brushed on and combined with amber-colored goggles had the ability to illuminate many different things that traditional fingerprint dust could miss. The FBI found more than four dozen fingerprints the police did not see using their conventional techniques. But everything could be attributed to a family or friend However, after several hours of meticulously dusting Polly's room, investigators finally came across a promising piece of evidence, a palm print on the crossbar of her bed. Like the person who left that print had placed his hand there to try to steady himself or leaned on it when reaching for something. Unfortunately, FBI fingerprint database did not contain palm prints at the time, only fingerprints. So this wasn't going to be of any use at the moment in helping to identify who might have done this to Polly. They'd have to find the guy first and then match his palm to this print. All the pieces of evidence collected from Polly's room were quickly sent to the FBI labs in Washington, D.C. for processing. It was determined that the bindings used to tie up all the girls were cut from one bigger piece of cloth that seemed to have come from something like a woman's nightgown or some kind of satiny sort of light material. Also among the fibers collected, technicians discovered some foreign materials that took quite some time to figure out where they came from. After examining the materials, they were finally able to come to the conclusion that these materials came from the inside carpet of a car. 
After being able to eliminate the cars from Polly's family and friends, they determined that these fibers were likely to have come from the suspect's vehicle. And again, all they had to do was find him and find that car. They'd be able to further link him to the crime scene. Also found, when the rug taken from Polly's room was vacuumed, was a foreign hair, a dark brown, forcibly pulled out head hair that still had a tiny bit of the root left on it. So, what this meant to investigators was two important things. One is that if Polly had yanked this hair from the man's head, she likely did not go without a fight. And two, they would be able to develop a DNA profile with the root material from the hair. But again, only if they could find the suspect to tie the hair to. Only if. And then there's the downside to having a case going so widely publicized. It tends to open up doors to scam artists pretending to raise funds for the search for Polly. They even called people, suggesting that they put money in an envelope and pin it to their door. Then there were the pranksters. Two days after Polly's abduction, her dad received a call from someone that sounded like Polly. She told him that she was in a motel room somewhere and that her abductor had stepped up for a moment, but the line quickly went dead. It was a glimmer of hope for her dad that she was still out there somewhere alive. Unfortunately, Polly's dad's phone line was not set up for a trace, but he quickly called the police with the news of the phone call. So, a trace was put up on his line, and they would have to wait and see if they would receive another call. So when the second call did come in, they were ready. Again, this girl said that she was at some motel and that she could only talk for a short time before she hung up again. But that call was long enough for investigators to make the trace. They traced the call to a house 30 miles away. There was not enough time to get together more than the agents they had on hand. But they did not want to let this lead slip away. They went in with what few agents they had. The FBI raided the location the call was traced to, but there was something not right about this place. It appeared to be just a regular family home with a regular family. No crazed kidnapper's place. There was no indication that Polly or her abductor had been to this home. So when agents sat down with the residents of the home, one of the girls in the home confessed to making the phone calls to Polly's dad on a dare from some friends at school. The hopes of finding Polly alive at that moment were quickly dashed by the confession that this was all a joke. Then, when a reward had been offered for information leading to Polly, a call came into authorities demanding a $10,000 ransom. They quickly traced that call to a local apartment complex. But this time, they showed up with the SWAT team. And unfortunately, this was yet another prank. But it was actually more of a serious kind of a prank. This guy was actually attempting to extort money. In the end, it had nothing to do with Polly. The man was arrested, but 
it was just another promising lead, devastatingly shut down. Another crushing blow to Polly's family and loved ones. Growing increasingly frustrated, as well as more desperate for answers, Polly's family published a letter in the San Francisco Examiner on October 17, 1993. The headline, A Parent's Plea, Free Our Polly. The article read as follows. Our beautiful 12-year-old daughter, Polly, was kidnapped at knife point from her house full of friends and family in Petaluma at approximately 10.30 p.m. Friday, October 1st, 1993. It is now 16 days later, and there is no trace of Polly or her abductor. Our sorrow is so deep. Our soul is so empty. Words cannot express the tremendous emptiness that we feel. We are angered and outraged that heinous, violent crimes are committed against our children. A child is a precious treasure. Children are our future. They must be nurtured and loved. They must be treated with respect, understanding, and compassion. They are small, and they are new, and they are true. They should be allowed to grow and bloom and prosper. They should not be denied their age of innocence. When a child is kidnapped as Polly was, measures and safeguards should be in place to expedite their immediate recovery. At present, it is illegal for a municipal police department to request the assistance of the FBI in a kidnapping. The FBI must be contacted by a third party. We feel that all resources must be expedited immediately in this critical situation where every second counts. Free postage should be accessible to the parents of confirmed kidnapped victims. Parents should not have to waste valuable time begging and groveling for stamps to get vital flyers and appeals for help into the mail. It will take an act of Congress to make this happen. Contact your state and local representatives and ask or demand their assistance in getting the laws regarding child abduction changed. If you know or suspect that a child is being abused, report the offending adult to the police. Violent acts against children cannot be tolerated because if violence against our kids is allowed, that is an indictment against our society and a crime against humanity. Children should be wary of strangers. If they feel threatened, they should know that it's okay to scream and yell and run. When they are outside, children should be accompanied by at least one other person. They should be taught self-defense and survival techniques. Teach your children to call 911, or if in a hotel, 9911. Secure your homes at night. Buy a dog with a loud bark. Purchase a baseball bat. 
We pray for Polly and talk to Polly all the time, but we don't know if she can hear us. We should not harm our children because they do not harm us. They should be raised with dignity. Their self-esteem, talents, and interests should be encouraged and reinforced so they can mature into valuable, constructive adults. If a child is neglected, abused, and ignored, that child will grow into the kind of injured adult that may commit violent crimes against the next generation of children. We miss Polly so much. She is so sweet and smart and pretty and sensitive and full of the joy of life. We miss the twinkle in her eye and her sweet humor. We long to see her beautiful smile and hear her musical voice. Whoever you are, wherever you are, please return Polly to her family. She belongs here. She is a part of us. We are a part of her. Our darling, if you can read this, please know that your mommy and daddy love you so much and we will continue to search for you until we can hold you safely in our loving arms again. Two weeks after Polly's abduction, agents decided to bring Polly's friends back in to work with the more skilled, highly acclaimed forensic artist to try to elicit a better, more accurate composite sketch of the suspect. This particular composite sketch artist had a knack for knowing how to make a witness feel more relaxed and calm when trying to put together what the suspect looked like down on paper. It also would help that the girls were less filled with anxiety and stress than the night that they had put together the first composite. This sketch was more accurate and new flyers were printed and immediately distributed. The search grew into a nationwide effort. People across the United States were touched by Polly's abduction. Banners and billboards sprang up everywhere. Candlelight vigils were held in the hopes of seeing her brought home safely. Lavender ribbons, Polly's favorite color, became a symbol of support for the search for her. And the ground search pushed on, day in and day out. The Navy, along with search and rescue experts, joined the thousands of volunteers who were constantly looking for Polly. Everyone worked tirelessly, but it would be two months before the case would finally break. On November 28, 1993, almost two months after Polly was kidnapped, authorities finally got their first lead. The sheriff was called out to a home in Sonoma County, a home which sat on the end of a very long, winding driveway. The homeowner had been out checking on her property when she spotted something unusual and thought it was something she needed to report to the sheriffs. She led the deputies through the densely wooded area towards a clearing, just a few yards off that long, winding road that led to her home. 
There were a few items there that were scattered in the woods that were very suspicious, including a large piece of silk cloth that appeared to be fashioned into some kind of hood or head covering, a couple of pieces of packing tape that were discarded on the ground, and a pair of girls' tights that had been tied into a knot. There were some human hairs entangled in the knot as well. While she and the deputies were looking over the discarded items, the resident suddenly recalled the night almost two months ago when she encountered that trespasser on her property, not very far from the spot where they were standing. Remember that missed opportunity? The very first one I spoke about earlier in this episode? The one where the homeowner's babysitter was making her way down the winding driveway and saw the man with his car stuck on the side of the road? She had shooed him away and went to the payphone and called the homeowner to tell her what she had seen. And then the homeowner subsequently packed up her daughter into the car and drove off the property to contact the sheriff, passing that stranded car as well. This was that same driveway, that same property, that same woman who had reported that car was now reporting these strange articles of clothing that she had found. I told you a little bit about the encounter those deputies had with Davis that night. The property owner could have, at that time, had him arrested for trespassing, but she decided that she did not want to do that. She just wanted him off her property. When police came, they began to question him about what he was doing, and he said he was sightseeing, but didn't realize he was on private property. He tried to turn his car around, and when he did, it became stuck. Deputies didn't believe that he was sightseeing. They asked him why his hair was full of twigs and dirt. He explained that he tried to get under the car to free it, but couldn't. Deputies didn't believe that either, as the way his car was stuck, there wasn't enough room for him to get underneath it. The deputy smelt alcohol on his breath, so they had administered a roadside sobriety test, and the stranger passed them all. Looking in his car, they found some cans of beer in the plastic bag and a duffel bag in the back seat, but they failed to search that duffel bag. When they asked him if he had been drinking, he had actually cracked open that beer and began drinking it in front of them. It got to the point where the deputies wanted to pat this man down, but he grew agitated and said that he didn't want to do that. In order to get him to cooperate, they told him that they would be within their rights to arrest him on the spot for trespassing, so he calmed down and submitted to the search. They looked carefully and continued questioning him, but they weren't really coming up with anything incriminating. They were still suspicious of the man, but when they ran his driver's license, Richard Allen Davis, it came up clean. No traffic violations, no warrants, no nothing apparently. They had been questioning him for about 45 minutes that night and determined that there was no legal reason to detain him any further. There was nothing left to do but pull his car out of the ditch and send him on his way. And now, this ominous discovery on that very same property two months later, the deputy quickly put the pieces together and returned to his car and made a call to the Petaluma Police Department. Within the hour, the lead detectives on Polly's case arrived at the scene. It was beginning to become nightfall, 
and it was becoming foggy and a little bit chilly when they arrived. They knew as soon as they got there that they had uncovered a very critical crime scene, and this would become the lead that they would need in order to crack Polly's case wide open. After the evidence was collected, volunteers spent days searching the side of the road on this private property, looking for more signs of Polly, hoping that there would be something in that dense forest that would lead to her, hopefully alive. Fortunately, and finally, that encounter with Richard Allen Davis with his car stuck on the side of the road was on the record. When they accessed his criminal record, they found that he had just been paroled that July of 1993 after having served that eight-year prison sentence for kidnapping. They also found the lengthy arrest record that I had detailed earlier. His booking photos matched the description Polly's friends had provided to police. And Davis's mom lived in Petaluma, California, giving him a reason to be in the area. Investigators were finally getting this case put together. The physical evidence found in the woods were quickly sent to the same forensics lab in Washington where the other evidence in Polly's case had been sent. And examination of the items revealed that these things were indeed tied to Polly's kidnapping. The strips of fabric that had been cut and used on Polly's friends matched up with the cut pieces found in the woods. This meant, at some point, Polly was on that private property that night with Davis. They didn't quite feel like they had enough evidence to charge him yet with Polly's abduction. And they didn't have Polly yet. But they wanted to bring him into custody quickly so they could talk to the guy and see what they could get out of him. They discovered that during the time Polly was missing, on October 19, 1993, Davis had been arrested for a DUI in Ukiah, California, and followed that up with a failure to appear in court which mean he had a warrant out for his arrest, and this was also a parole violation. So they went to the home where they believed he was staying in order to get him into custody, but he wasn't there. Authorities secured the perimeter leading to and from his place of residence and stopped everyone who was passing through when a blue van was suddenly stopped. The man behind the wheel offered his driver's license, and as it turned out, this would be Richard Allen Davis. Finally, a plan worked. The deputy, realizing who he had, called it in and had Davis wait inside his vehicle. Detectives on the case arrived quickly to the scene and placed him under arrest for the parole violation. Polly's friends were brought in to look at a lineup of suspects. Even though he had shaved his beard, the girls had no trouble picking him out of the lineup they were certain the man that they had chosen was a man who took Polly, and the man that they chose was Richard Allen Davis. Even though they were holding him on a parole violation for the DUI and failure to appear, they immediately began questioning him about his involvement in Polly's disappearance. He vehemently denied that he had anything to do with her disappearance. The detectives tried not to press too hard, they wanted to find out where Polly was at. 
So they had tried the technique of building a rapport with this man. They told him, okay, if you don't want to talk, that's fine. But the door is always open when you're ready. They let him know that they had enough physical evidence to prosecute him for the kidnapping. And that's all he was facing at the moment. But no dice. He wasn't talking. The investigator told him that was all right. But if he wanted to talk, he'd leave his name and number, just hoping that Davis would call him. In the meantime, investigators collected the palm prints from Davis in order to compare them to the palm print they had recovered from that bed crossbar in Polly's room. This was a very crucial piece of evidence that would undoubtedly link Davis to Polly's room. And the lab was able to positively match Davis to that palm print. When the word got back to the FBI agent on the case, he came out of his office and announced it to everyone that was in there that the match was made, and the room erupted in cheers. Davis was nailed. News of the match hit the media, but it was announced that an arrest had been made in the abduction of Polly. Her whereabouts were still unknown, and Davis wasn't talking. He was being held in isolation, so word of the palm print match had not reached him. A couple of days into December, a friend visited Davis at the jail, speaking to him on the phone through the glass. His friend urged him to talk to police and tell them where Polly was. But to his friend, Davis continued to deny responsibility. His friend gave him the news that everyone else already knew, that Davis's print was found on Polly's bed. Davis quickly realized it was going to be impossible to explain how his palm print got in Polly's bedroom. He decided that he was going to have to do something, maybe cut a deal to try and save himself. As one of the lead detectives, the one who gave Davis his number, was on his way to work on the ground search for Polly, he received a page to call the jail. This was the call he had been waiting for. Davis got on the phone and told the detective that he screwed up, that he screwed up big time. The detective, along with his partner, rushed over to the jail and met with Davis in an interrogation room where he told them the story of October 1st, 1993. After being let out on parole in July, Davis had taken up residence at Turning Point, a homeless shelter in San Mateo, California. On the 23rd of September, he applied and received permission to visit his family near Ukiah, California, about 100 miles north of San Francisco. About a week later, on October 1st, he made his way to Petaluma, where his mother was apparently living. And he somehow made his way to the two-bedroom home where Polly lived. He claimed that he had been drinking, and he couldn't seem to find his mom's house. And he said he purchased a joint off a passerby, and that he also went to buy more beer. He claims to have been wandering drunk and high, and didn't know where he was or what he was doing. But to investigators, David had come to the neighborhood prepared for the crime that he would go on to commit. He had brought a bag full of bindings and tape 
That duffel bag that deputy saw in his car that night when he was trespassing on private property. That bag that they didn't feel they needed to search. The forensic investigation proved that Davis had cut those strips and bindings with scissors, something that also proved his intent to do what he did. Not the random wanderings of a drunk man not knowing what he was doing or where he was going. He remembers picking a home at random. He heard voices and a TV on in the home, and he decided to climb through an open window. He grabbed the knife from the kitchen, and from there, he claims to not remember anything. The next thing he remembers is driving in his car with a young girl sitting next to him. She had complained to him that her hands were tingling, and he says he adjusted the bindings to make them more comfortable. He claims that he was driving around, wondering what he had done and what he should do next. And then he stated he drove off that side of the road, which is where he got his car stuck. When he was unable to get the car unstuck, he took Polly out of the car and carried her up an embankment about 30 yards away and left her there in the dark until he could figure out what to do next. The rest of his story did match what the rest of the witnesses had said happened that night with his stuck vehicle. Unfortunately, at that time, when the bulletin for Polly's abduction had gone out over police radios, those deputies that encountered Davis had been tuned into a different frequency and did not hear it. After deputies pulled his car out of the ditch, they escorted him back down the driveway and off the private property. At this point, Davis claims that he waited a few minutes for deputies to leave, and then he went back up the driveway to try and find Polly. He then decided he needed to get rid of her, and he let detectives know that Polly was dead. He would be willing to take them to the site where he had left her. She was in a deserted area of Cloverdale, California. Even though it was nighttime, investigators did not want to wait until daybreak to confirm Davis's story. He led them to a field adjacent to an old abandoned lumber mill. Out in the field, covered up by some wooden boards, they finally found Polly. Three days later, Davis was charged with her kidnapping and murder, as well as numerous related charges. He pleaded not guilty on all counts at his arraignment in Sonoma County. A year after his arrest, Davis's attorney filed for a change of venue motion, claiming that Davis would not be able to get a fair trial in Sonoma County. Two months later, he dropped his motion to move the trial after he realized that his client was a scumbag no matter what county he was in. I'm kidding. Apparently, surveys revealed that a change of venue would not have benefited his client. So yeah, basically what I said. Jury selection began in July, and unprecedented 8,500 people were called into the pool of potential jurors. But this had to be postponed because the questioning process was so involved and so elaborate that Davis's attorney needed more time to sift through them all. By September of 1995, it was becoming apparent to Davis's attorney that there was a great deal of bias against his client. Um, you think? So the judge suspended the jury selection and scheduled that change of venue hearing after all, subsequently coming to the conclusion that the trial must be moved out of Sonoma County 
if Davis had any chance of getting a fair trial. In November, the change of venue hearing took place. Davis's attorney wanted to move this thing to San Diego County. Can you imagine the furthest county away possible from where they were in Northern California? The judge quickly rejected this request and proceeded to pick a much closer Santa Clara County. If you ask me, at that time, there was no county in California that would have been more beneficial than any other. Every Californian knew who this guy was, and they knew what he did. The trial got underway with opening statements on April 17, 1996. Cameras were barred from the courtroom, coming up the heels of the nine-month-long O.J. Simpson trial that had just ended the previous October with a not guilty verdict in the case and a media circus following the entire proceedings, the judge overseeing Polly's case was trying to avoid that, indicating that there was nothing that could be learned from showing this trial on TV. The prosecutor opened with a two and a half hour opening statement in contrast to the defense's opening statement, which lasted 15 minutes. Davis's attorney acknowledged that his client murdered Polly, but disputed the charges that he also sexually molested her. Despite the denial of the sexual charges, the admission of the killing did surprise many sitting in the courtroom. I won't get into the minutiae of the trial as this episode has gone on long enough. I do want to highlight some of the emotional parts, though. One article I read described the trial as having unfolded behind a veil of many, many tears. Polly's mom was the first to take the stand, appearing gaunt and pale and so haunted as she recalled the night she turned in early because of a migraine, leaving Polly and her two friends in the room next to her. She said goodnight to them, and Polly said goodnight, Mommy. She said that was the last time she ever saw her. The words barely able to escape from her. Polly's two friends, the ones that were there with her that night, Davis took her, bravely took the stand in order to identify that man who came into the room that night, tied them up, and took their friend. The jurors cried for Polly. They cried as they listened to her mother's agonizing testimony. They cried as they listened to the 911 call Polly's mom made as those moments shifted from a state of disorientation and disbelief to sheer panic that her child was gone. They cried as they watched the videotaped confession of Davis jerking his hands around, describing how he strangled the life out of Polly. They cried when they were shown the pictures of the state Polly was found, skull missing, what was left mummified, partially covered up in a striped nightgown. They cried as her father, Mark, testified about Polly, bringing her to life as best he could for the court. But he also talked about those fears, the fears I spoke about earlier, her fears of the dark, her fears of being alone, her fears of what happened to her actually happening to her, 
tears fell from nearly everyone across the courtroom as he talked of what her last hours must have been like, her worst fears coming to fruition, being alone in the dark with the man who stole her. Tears fell for the defendant as well, from his family. Despite the fact that I loathe this man, it has never lost on me that his family also faces a great deal of struggle and heartache over his deplorable actions. His attorneys described him as a damaged person beyond any hope or help, the son of an uncaring and unloving mother who used physical punishment, leaving him pretty much abandoned after bitter divorce from his father. And his father was described as a neglectful parent who also physically punished Davis, even breaking his jaw once. His sister and stepsister would also cry for him. They cried for his life, the only family that they had left. Any kind of sympathy gained, if any at all, from the testimony of Davis's family very quickly vanished when the jury rendered its verdict on June 18, 1996, when they found him guilty on all charges. Davis sat there impassively as the verdicts were read, and when they were finished, he stood and turned to the audience, including all of Polly's family holding hands, and used both of his to flip everyone off in the courtroom. At this point, there were no more tears from the jury. They would go on to recommend the death sentence for Davis. He was formally sentenced to die in California's gas chamber on September 26, 1996. Polly's family had the opportunity to address the court with their victim impact statements, including Polly's dad, who told the court that Davis had made innocent people suffer and that the truly honorable way out would be for him to commit suicide that it would be the least he could do to alleviate their pain. But since he does not have the goodness or the courage within him to even take that step, that the state is placed in the terrible position to have to make that decision for him. If you watch footage of the impact statement, you can see Davis grimacing, smirking, swiveling in his chair as if he's enjoying himself. And then Davis was given the opportunity to address the court as well. He said, To Eve Nichols and her family, that's Polly's mom, for what it's worth, I do offer my sincere apology. To certain members of the class family, I offer the same. But I would also like to state for the record that the main reason why I know that I did not attempt any lewd act that night was because of the statement the young girl made to me when walking her up that embankment. Just don't do me like my dad. I have to pay my dues and so should you. There was an audible gasp that came from the courtroom as Mark jumped out of his seat and yelled, burn and hell, Davis. He was escorted from the courtroom and the judge accepted the jury's recommendation 
and sentenced Davis to death, telling him that he made a normally difficult and traumatic decision very easy this time. Richard Allen Davis continues to sit on California's death row to this day. Let it not be forgotten that the very first tears that were shed in this case were Polly's tears. When she and her friends encountered that man in her bedroom, she would be the first of many, many, many people to shed tears over this. She cried first. She bravely stood up when this man asked who lived in this house and said it was her. She offered up her box of cash when he said he was doing this for the money. She cried for her mom and her sister when she asked the stranger to not hurt them. She did everything she could to save herself and to save her family and to save her friends from this man. For 64 days, hundreds of people, family, friends, law enforcement, volunteers, and strangers searched many of them through tremendous heartache and tears to try and find Polly. And on December 4th, 1993, one word came that Polly was coming home, but not alive. Everyone cried. Thank you so much for joining me for this 26th episode of California Dreaming. I had originally intended this to be episode number 25, but I was out of commission, and you might be able to tell from the sound of my voice that I'm not quite 100% back, but believe me, I sound a lot better than I did for the last eight days. I ended up having to pull a Patreon-exclusive episode from about a month ago or so and turn that into episode 25. I had no voice, and I wasn't able to add anything extra to it, no shout-outs, I wasn't able to wish everyone a happy holidays or a Merry Christmas. It wasn't even a story out of California because it was a bonus episode from the week that I did that vacation series out of Florida. But it was football related. And the regular season is winding down, so there's that. There was also much more that I wanted to say about Polly's case and her legacy how laws changed in the wake of her abduction and murder. And I wanted to expand on child abductions, talk about all that extra stuff that I like to talk about in the beginning and the end of my stories. But this has gone on way too long, so I'm trying to wrap this up quickly. I might put out another bonus episode, like I said, or a kind of addendum to this one to follow up, because believe it or not, I haven't said all that I wanted to say about this case. California Dreaming has found a home, as you know, on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a small but growing family of eclectic podcasts, including shows such as The Concession Stand, Super Nerds UK, The Dirty Bits, Busted Wide Open, Historium, 41 Owned, Is This Adulting, and Film Roast. You can find all of us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com and just click on our links. You will also find links to our merchandise shop. Browse California Dreaming Store 
and get that t-shirt, mug, or tote bag that you didn't get for Christmas. And before I forget, back to episode 24, The Tale of the Little Blue Lies, the story about the Netflix documentary Longshot, I had mentioned that the idea was put forth to me by a listener on social media, and I couldn't find who I'd talked to about it. Well, good news. She messaged me and reminded me that it was she who brought it up. So, to Facebook commenter Lindsay Gonzalez, thank you for bringing that story to my attention. That episode has been so well received, and I'm so grateful to have been able to share my take on it with everyone. Thank you again. And also, don't forget to visit the California Dreaming Facebook page. Follow and leave a review if you already haven't, or on iTunes if that's where you listen to your podcast. I'm not so sure anymore because all the buzz about the Apple Podcast app isn't exactly a crowd favorite. So, should you feel so inclined, you could check with your other podcast players to see if there are links to leave comments and or reviews. Every little bit helps give the show more visibility, and I'm hoping to see California Dreaming, the Orbital Jigsaw Network, and my entire pod family grow exponentially in the new year. Also, don't forget to follow me on Twitter and Instagram as well. Oh, and speaking of social media, I did do a drawing for the next vacation series episode. I decided to draw three and put it to a vote on social media. And it seems that on Instagram and Twitter, Ohio was the winner. But on Facebook, Michigan was the winner there. The third choice was Georgia. And to tell you the truth, I'd really love to choose a case from all three to tell. So what I think I'm going to do is for the second installment of the vacation series, I am going to pick a case from Cleveland, Ohio, as I promised Karen B., Then I'll do a bonus mini episode on a case from Detroit, Michigan, and then I will do a Patreon episode from Anywhere, Georgia. And speaking of which, I wanted to again thank everyone for their continued support on Patreon. For as little as $1, you have access to bonus episodes, bonus content, and some exclusive show perks. And by the way, I'll let you in on a little secret. Not all bonus Patreon episodes stay exclusive to Patreon donors forever. Whenever something comes up or I get sick like I did this week of episode 25, I'll pull a Patreon episode so we won't miss a week. Eventually, you'll all hear the bonus episodes too. Okay, I'll stop now. This has gone on for way too long. Thank you once again for joining me. I hope all of you had a wonderful holiday. I wish you all the best in the coming year. I, for one, cannot wait to see what 2018 has in store. And until next time, sweet dreams.